Genesis chapter 38 is where we're going to be in your Bible and several other places in Scripture. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series called The Women of Christmas. As we go through the Christmas story and look at the female characters that are there in the story, we think about Scripture and how women were the last people at the cross. They were the first to proclaim the gospel active throughout church history, instrumental in so many different ways, and we have a chance to celebrate that this Advent season, this Christmas season, and so we're going to do that in different ways in the coming weeks, but just as the opening sermon illustration for today and thinking about what it is to celebrate the women of Christmas, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, when you got to Christmas season, everybody talked about one lady. Anybody know who that was? Lottie Moon was usually who we talked about <laughs> at Christmas, was Lottie Moon. Um, and we talked about missions and what it was to live our lives on missions and the role that Lottie Moon played in that. And so this first Sunday of Advent, talking about the women of Christmas, I wanted to have a few ladies on stage. And frankly, this group could have been 15 or 20 ladies that I was running through my mind, so I wasn't intending to leave anybody out. Just some ladies up here to talk about missions and what that looks like in their lives and what that can look like in, in the life of a church. And so I know so many of you have been involved vocationally and going on mission trips and have done so many things in missions. Uh, these ladies are going to talk to us a little bit this morning about what that looks like. Michelle, just start by telling us a little bit about what the Lord has allowed you to do in your life when it comes, comes to missions. Okay, well, um, I spent about 11 years with the International Mission Board, which is the Baptist International Missions organization. Um, I spent about five years in Nepal, which for those of you who don't know is wedged in between India and China, working on what we called oral Bible, teaching the Bible for non-literate people. And then I spent about six years in Thailand doing a big variety of things. Yeah. And now the Lord's brought you back here to I'm continue to do mission work. So yeah, we <laughs> have people celebrating that work. We have some OBHC ladies in the audience. That's right. That's right. That's right. Kennedy, what's that look like in your life? What have you been able to do in, with missions? And yeah, so I started in elementary schools when I started like short-term mission trips. And so that's kind of been a part of my uh, walk with the Lord, just doing short-term mission trips to Mexico, Panama, Ukraine. Um, and then I have some family that serves as missionaries. So I've kind of gotten to have a front row seat to looking at what long-term missions looks like. And so the past year or two of my life has been praying through like how the Lord is going to use me next. Yeah. So. Yeah. Africa, what's your story? What have you, what have you been able to do? And, what, and, and tell people what you're doing right now as well with mission work. Um, so I was able to go on several short-term mission trips in high school, which really gave me a love for other cultures. In college, I studied global studies and was able to spend a semester in West Africa um, teaching English to adults. Uh, right now, I have the opportunity to work with Emmaus as a missions associate, um, and I'm also working with refugees at another job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're working specifically with Afghan refugees who are coming in to the state. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy, what's your story uh, with missions? Well, my very first ever mission trip was to Taiwan, which was um, big. <laughs> and then uh, for the last 11 or 12 years, been uh, able to be a part of going to Panama and, and taking teams there. Yeah. And those of you who don't know about Amy's story, that connects even back to your parents and, and them being in Panama on the front line of not intending necessarily to go do mission work, but it turned into that. Amy, who taught you about missions? How did you learn about being involved in missions? Who was instrumental 
Well, uh, my mom always went on mission trips. I, can, I remember that just growing up in high school, um, going to Guatemala and, and, uh, and um, Panama and places. And um, I also had, like, God just put a special lady in my life. Um, it was just a good friend that was the one that I went on the Taiwan mission trip with. And um, just teaching me, um, just living out that example of missions and just having your yes available to whatever God wants you to do, just be ready and willing to do whatever he's calling you to do. Yeah. And that idea of having your yes available, if God opens up the door to be able to go and do something, you've talked about that even when I text you and say, Amy, will you come on stage and uh, share about missions? Like, I don't want to, but my yes is available, so I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Michelle, I, I don't know as much about your story. Who introduced you to mission work? What was your story growing up, and how, how did you get started in missions? Well, I grew up in the Baptist church, um, hearing all the stuff, and honestly found it a little boring. <laughs> um, I went to college at OU and was involved in the BSU, now called the BCM, and that's where um, the spark kind of lit. Um, just one for the idea of ministry. I think I grew up thinking that there was a special class of people who were ministers, and God really sparked that idea in me that all of us who are believers have a place in ministry and that my life could matter even if I wasn't a super Christian. Um, but I was also exposed to a lot of missionaries, a lot of missionary stories. One in particular was by a woman named Joanne Shetler. She wrote a book called, And the Word Came with Power. She was a Wycliffe missionary. It's a beautiful story of her going into this tribe and over a period of many years seeing the Word of God transform um, this entire tribe. And that really inspired me to want to be a part of that. Yeah. And, and hearing that, give us the name of that book again. It's called, And the Word Came with Power. And the woman's name is Joanne Shetler. It's, she was a Wycliffe missionary. As you think about your own life and growing in faith, and especially with your kids, few things are more impactful than biographies and autobiographies of missionaries. Um, if you're talking about your kids, your grandkids, what does God want to do in your own life? This Christmas, buy some missionary biographies. Buy some missionary autobiographies. If you guys need recommendations for that, come to me, come to any of these ladies. They will be glad to point you in some directions. That is so instrumental in shaping our hearts, shaping the way we think about the world, what God might, might call us to do. Kennedy, one thing I wanted you to talk about for a second. We talk about going on short-term mission trips, and we go, we come back, we try to make an impact. But one thing we know about mission trips is it doesn't just impact the people you go to. Sometimes God uses it to shape your life and the process of going. Talk about that for a minute, how, how God has shaped shaped your life through that. Yeah, I think it's always exciting to see how the Lord is moving, even here, but whenever you're in a culture that's different than your own, um, things just seem a lot more real, and things, um, you start to understand how the Lord is faithful and really get to see that work out. Um, and for me specifically, I think um, just coming home, it motivates you even more to continue to share the gospel, especially when you go to places where the gospel necessarily can't be preached legally. Um, and so you start to see how people are really broken in, that, um, in those places, but then to see how the Lord moves through the brokenness um, is just really special and it's really cool. And so it just really motivates you to understand that when you are going to minister to others or sharing the gospel with others, you start to get the confidence that what's coming out of your mouth is not your own words. It's the Lord using the Holy Spirit. When you really start to understand that, um, that motivation and that strength just kind of comes hand in hand with it. Yeah. Africa, jump in on that part about how being involved in missions, your work in West Africa, different places, how's that shaped your own spiritual growth, your, your own heart? 
Um, when you're involved in missions, you're face to face with a lot of brokenness and pain. And I think that just creates a dependence on the Lord. Hmm. Um, it gives room for his love that a lot of times we try to be self-sufficient without, um, but just acknowledge that we need that. Um, at the same time, it just uh, it gives us a greater view of God because of the diversity and creati- creativity he had in creating his people. That's a great point. Yeah, thanks for being We don't always think about that, but just the way it widens our perspective and see the way the Lord's at work. Uh, around the world. Amy, I know one thing you've done uh, particularly well and it's been important to you is you're bringing along younger ladies when you go on these trips, purposely, just like, who can I bring with me? Talk about that process of bringing along these high school, college girls, many of which are going on in life now that you've been able to do. Why you did that and, and how you've seen the Lord work through that? Um, well, in going, um, it was... Um challenged me in my faith just to know that God's the one that goes before us. I think of the verse that says, um, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And so um, just seeing how God had prepared in advance the trips, the details, the flights, the, um, the kids that went with me, the girls that went with me, um, and just doing that together. And um, they encouraged me in my faith and mm just seeing them step out and, and opportunities that we would have throughout the day to, to share. And, uh, you know, I would just say, hey, somebody needs to share today. And just seeing them grow and, and step up to share their testimony or something that God's teaching them. And so um, just thankful to be a part of that yeah. and to see that in their lives. No, I love that, how you just put them right into opportunities where you've taken steps of faith and now they get to take those steps with you. Sure. Michelle, uh, wrap us up with this, and you alluded to this earlier, but you've been an overseas vocational full-time missionary. You're serving here, you've served in other ways. Talk to people, what's it look like just to live on mission every day? What has the Lord taught you about that? Encourage people, it's not about necessarily going on a trip all the time or, or being full-time overseas. Just what does it look like to live on mission? What would you encourage people with? I would say, um, first of all, just um, know your Bible, know your scriptures. Um, one of the things that I learned was to separate out what's cultural and what's really scriptural. So I would say know your scriptures and then just make the effort that it takes to get involved with people different than you. Um, mm. And that can be all kinds of different than you. but. Um, not just to be friendly to them, but to actually get involved in whatever is going on in their lives and just make the effort and the time and the space in your life for people that are not like you. That's so good. Well, that's, that's a great place to, to land that and, and think about going into uh, to God's Word together this morning. Let's pray together as a church family, and then we're going to get into Scripture and, and this sermon series. God, thank you that even with the story of Christmas, we see this picture of you coming to us, uh, a missionary picture that, that you've come among us, and then you send us out to, to live among those who aren't like us, to go into hard places. And God, thank you that Emmaus has such an incredible history of, of missions, and, and just how uh, Jim continues to lead us in those ways in the days to come. And God, I pray for Emmaus that you would call out kids and teenagers and college students and retirees from our church to go to go out full-time to different places. And God, I also pray that you would send people this week to their workplace. You would send people this week to their neighbors. You would send people this week to their schools and their classmates, thinking about what it is to live on mission. And God, thank you for the example we have of that. 
And God, continue to show us what that looks like. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, ladies, again. So what we're looking to do over the next several weeks, the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, is look at these different ladies who show up in the Christmas story in different ways. And I didn't ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, but I want to start with some verses on the screen from Matthew chapter 1 that introduces to some of these ladies we're going to look at. And then we're going to look at each of these ladies in the Old Testament, three this morning and continuing in the weeks ahead. Matthew chapter 1, let's start there. And, and the verses are going to be up on the screen if you're not able to get there quickly in your phone or your Bible. But I want us to begin here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy, the background, the family story of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. There in verse 2, you have the famous patriarchs of the Old Testament, these male figures that were key in the way that God is shaping his people and he's using them and he's developing what will ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. Then you get to verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, there's our first female character, first Christmas story that shows up here. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's our next female character. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Again, wife of Uriah referring to Bathsheba, her name doesn't even appear there, but another female character. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba. Our plan this morning is, God, why do those three ladies show up in the Christmas story? Why are they a part of Advent? Why are they a part of the story of the coming of Jesus? So, let's start with Tamar. Genesis chapter 38 in your Bible. If you go back to the book of Genesis, First book in the Old Testament, chapter 38, we find the story of Tamar. Now, we just came off of two weeks of looking at Esther, which Esther is kind of a rated R, rated X type of story. Got to be honest with you, <laughs> Tamar, Genesis chapter 38, is also another story that's probably rated R in, in the Old Testament, just in terms of, of the material that is covered. In this story here, you find Judah, a character we've already seen, and Judah has these three sons, and the first son there has a wife, Tamar, and he is a very evil man, and he dies. And so Judah turns around and gives his second son to Tamar, and the second son is really no better. <laughs> like, he pretends like he is going to allow Tamar to have a child, but he doesn't follow through with his duties. It doesn't happen. So then you ultimately have this third son that should be given to Tamar. And Judah refuses to give his daughter-in-law this third son of his. He says, wait, wait, wait till he gets older. Then you can have him as a husband. Well, then go to verse 13 in Genesis chapter 38. Verse 13. 
And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law, speaking of Judah, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, normally we would think about that in English as a female name, but this is the third son that should have been given to her as a husband, but was not, saw that he was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. All right, so best you can in an appropriate way, you get this story in your mind. Here comes Judah, along the way, his wife has died, his daughter-in-law has had a husband who's died, and his daughter-in-law is now posing, Tamar is posing as a prostitute along the side of the road. Judah comes by and approaches her for the duties of a prostitute. He comes to her and she says, well, what are you going to pay me with? And he says, well, I'll send you a goat later. And she's like, well, is he really going to send me this goat later? Probably not. So she asked for a pledge of security. And so he leaves behind his signet ring and his staff and one of the cords from his robe. And they are together at that time. And then you go down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Now, has she been the one who's been immoral, or has it been Judah in this situation? Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. She is pregnant outside of marriage. And Judah said, well, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet ring and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, and he did not know her again. Now by this point in the story, we know that she's pregnant, and ultimately she has twins, Perez and Zerah. One of the interesting things about Zerah is he tries to come out as the first twin, kind of sticks his hand out, they tie a scarlet cord around his wrist, He pulls his hand back in, and Perez is actually born first and becomes a part of the Matthew 1 story of of the coming of Jesus. But you have this established here. A good question to ask at this point is, why is Tamar listed in the genealogy? Why is she a part of, of the Christmas story? Now, there are reasons by the way the book of Genesis is put together, but I want to propose a reason to you this morning. Tamar is included as part of the genealogy of Jesus because it gives us a picture of the world that Jesus came to save. That when Jesus' family is being established, his family is not perfect. You have crazy people in your family. Uh, You might be the crazy person in your family, but uh, you have crazy people in your family. Jesus did too. When Jesus took on humanity, when Jesus took on flesh, he also took on a family. And when he took on a family, he took on a history. And when he took on a history, he took on a history that had sin and brokenness woven all through the picture. And even that way that Jesus comes into a broken family is such a picture for us. Because if we're not careful, 
We think that everything in our background has to be good and right and clean in order for God to work through our life. What is it in your background or what is it in your family that you think God can never work through this? Is there something in your background? Is there something in your story? Is there something in your family that you feel like I would have to hide that away in order to really present myself before the Lord that the Lord would use me? Oh, I've been messed up. I come from a messed up family. I've come from hard circumstances. Can I tell you, that's exactly the type of situation that God works through. That God is more interested in redemption than he is in regret. Many people live with the burden of regret on their shoulders. They live always looking back to their history, to their family, to their background, and God wants to work to redeem your story, to redeem your family, that in these stories of Christmas, in these stories of these women of Christmas, the story of God continues to press forward. And it takes us to the character of Rahab. Rahab's story is in Joshua chapter two. So if you're in Genesis in your Bible, you're gonna turn over about five books to the right, if you're looking in your phone, it'll be a lot easier. You'll just scroll down a few, uh, a few uh, books in the Bible, and you'll get to the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. So we've already seen that the background of Jesus, his family has a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain back there. The story of Judah and Tamar is a, is a really strange story in the Old Testament, but it's important. Now we get to Rahab. The book of Joshua, if you're not as familiar with your Bible, the book of Joshua is after Moses has died, Joshua is given the task of leading the people into the promised land. And as they're beginning to go into the promised land, Joshua is sending out spies to figure out what kind of strategy they need as they move into this promised land. Joshua chapter two, verse one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Again, who shows up in the story of Jesus? Who shows up in the background family of Jesus? Again, someone who is identified as a prostitute. Not only that, but we know from Rahab's story that she's not an Israelite, that she's coming from outside the people of God. The story of Rahab being in the background of Jesus reminds us that from the very beginning, the plan has been that Jesus would draw people from all nations, from all peoples. That it was never just salvation for Israel. It was always about salvation for all people. And here, He's appearing in this way through the story of Rahab. Here's this woman who's a prostitute. She comes from outside of Israel, and yet she's a key figure in the background story of Jesus. Now, the story goes on in chapter 2, and we know the story of how the spies come to Rahab, and she hides them. And when the people come in to find the spies, she says a lie. She says, I don't know where they are. They've gone off in another direction. And then she turns around and she makes this incredible confession about her belief in the Lord. In verse 5, she says, I don't know where those men are. And then in verse 9, she says, but I do know what it is to fear the Lord. Her background of deceit and lying is replaced with a confession of faith in the Lord. 
your background might be full of a lot of deceit, a lot of lying, a lot of brokenness, and yet you can still confess faith in the Lord and it changes your future. I have a new confession to make. I know what it is to fear the Lord. I know what it is to move in a new direction. And God begins to work through Rahab as a story of faith. And you go down to verse 18 in chapter two, and the spies tell her, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your family, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Remember back to that story of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38? One of the images in Genesis 38 as Zerah, who would ultimately be the second child, sticks his arm out early, what's tied around his wrist? A scarlet cord. The second female character that we find in Matthew 1 as part of Jesus' background, Rahab, what is she involved with? A scarlet cord. Why are Tamar and Rahab included in Matthew 1? There seems to be some sort of connection here with the use of a scarlet cord. Rahab, again, someone coming from a hard background, outside of the people of God, and yet she is a key part of how God works to move his people into the promised land, ultimately leading to the coming of Jesus. Second Samuel, chapter 11 in your Bible. Let's go to the third character we're going to look at. Second Samuel, chapter 11. To find Second Samuel, just keep turning to the right a little bit, scrolling down in, in your phone. We're going to have the verses up here on the, uh, on the screen as well. Tamar poses as a prostitute. Rahab is identified as a prostitute, comes from outside the people of God. The third person, the third woman of Christmas that we identify here, Bathsheba who's often not even called by her own name. She's just called the wife of Uriah. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. You know, the best way to get in trouble in life is to not be where you're supposed to be. <laughs> uh, David was not actively involved in what he was supposed to be actively involved in, and it gets him in trouble here. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Sometimes, just maybe a quick comment about this story. Sometimes this story is, is told as Bathsheba's adultery. Let's be really honest about what's happening here. Bathsheba is not initiating this relationship, that she has been forcibly taken um, and in this type of culture, taken by a person with ultimate political power. So she is taken against her will in this situation, and she goes and she lays with him. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now we know that in much of the remainder of, of chapter 11, you have the story of how David sets up the circumstances 
So Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is killed in battle. But it's practically murder because of the way that the situation is set up. Then you go down to verse 26. Down in verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah, speaking of Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then when you get into chapter 12, you find that this first child ultimately dies. And David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he realizes his sin. And in your Bible, Psalm chapter 51 is David's repentance and his response to what has happened in this situation. But there's great pain that he and Bathsheba go through. And then ultimately, another son is given to them, Solomon, who becomes part of that story of Jesus' background, Jesus' family. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba. If you were coming as God into the world as the king of kings, do you think that you would pick these figures to be part of your family? Is this how we would often think of a devil in our family? We want it. What are the common themes that you find from, from these, these women of Christmas? The women of Christmas are associated either with sexual coercion, things that have been done to them, or with sexual immorality, impropriety on their part, are usually some, some combination of both. All three of these women are considered outsiders in some way to the people of God, so that when God does his work through the family that would ultimately lead to Jesus, he doesn't necessarily work through the people who are considered insiders. These are women who are familiar with tears and pain. You think about the story of Rachel in, in Matthew 2, that the weeping that happens among those who experience pain in life. But you know what these women are also identified by? Incredible resiliency. Putting their faith into action despite their background. They had the wrong background. They had the wrong reputation. They had the worst life circumstances that could have been dealt to them, and they just kept on going. I don't know in your life what this looks like, but many of us have been impacted by strong women who faced incredibly hard backgrounds, terribly hard circumstances, and they were fighters. <laughs> like they were not giving up. They were gonna be resilient. They were gonna continue to work. They were gonna continue to move ahead and they were gonna continue to trust in the Lord. What's the first thing I want you to see from these women of Christmas? It's very simple that these women of Christmas are a picture of the gospel. The background of Jesus, the family background of Jesus, the way that these particular women are included in the story is in itself a picture of the gospel. No matter your background, no matter your reputation, no matter your circumstances, God has made a way of salvation. Hear me out on this. If you are here this morning and you say, I need salvation. I need to experience the love of God, but you have no idea my background. You have no idea what people have said about me. You have no idea the circumstances that I'm facing. I could say, yeah, I, I don't know, but I do know that the story of Christmas is that God has come right into the middle of our mess. God has come right into the middle of our brokenness, and he brings salvation. And your life right now might feel like a mess, 
You might be facing circumstances that you would have never chosen. You've been dealt a hand that is so incredibly hard. You're dealing with all kinds of attacks on your reputation. And I would tell you, turn to the Lord, that he is at work in those situations. And here's where the story of Advent can be so helpful. These women not only give us a picture of Christmas, but these women teach us how we can live as we go through this season of Advent, as we prepare ourselves for Christmas. How do these women teach us to live? The first thing that I would tell you about these women that they, that they teach us is beware of the need to appear perfect. <laughs> and especially during the holidays, when everybody else's family picture turned out perfectly and your family picture doesn't look quite as perfect. And everybody else's house is decorated incredibly well and you can't even bring yourself to put up the Christmas decorations this year. When everybody else's story looks perfect and you feel like you're just barely holding it together. Over the holidays, during this season of Advent, we can face additional pressure to make it look like we have it all together. Jesus did not whitewash his family problems. <laughs> he had all kinds of craziness in his family background. People will sometimes say, Owen, you just, you just don't know what my family is like. And usually all of us can turn around and say, you know what, we, we all have our family craziness. We all have those situations in our family that are difficult. We don't have to look like we're just trying to hold it together. And I was just talking to somebody this last week about this idea one of the things that can make church so frustrating and difficult is even if we don't mean to, we feel pressure when we come to church to look like it's all okay, to look like we're holding it together, to look like we're, everything's good, when you know behind the scenes it's not. And the story of these women of Christmas is so liberating. The story of these women of Christmas says, even in your hurt, even in your pain, God is at work. Draw near to the marginalized, to those who are outsiders, to those who are hurting. During this time of Christmas, during this season of Advent, just like these ladies we're talking about up here, there are people around you who their situation is difficult, their reputation is not good, they've probably done some things they shouldn't have done, and it would be easy to draw away from those people. The story of Christmas says that we're called to go toward them, to love them, to care for them, to be involved in their lives, even with all the mess that's going on there. And then the third thing that these women teach us is the power of having hope, having resiliency. With everything we've gone through in our world in the last couple of years, one of the greatest characteristics that people are going to be able to have in the days to come, especially as Christians, is resiliency and hope and not giving up. That no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're facing right now, that your life is not going to be defined by past actions and present circumstances. Your life is defined by future hope. My life will not be defined by what I've done or what's been said about me in the past. My life will not be defined by the difficulty I'm facing right now. My life is defined by the hope that I have in Jesus for all of eternity. And we can rejoice in that hope, and we can celebrate that hope, and we can hold on to that hope, knowing that what we are facing right now is not the end of the story. And we see that message played out, and we learn that message from these women of Christmas, who remind us that in all of our mess, and all of our difficulty, and all of our pain and brokenness, God is at work, 
to redeem those things. Not regret, not regret. Redemption, rejoicing, resiliency. I've been redeemed by Jesus. I refuse to give up, and I'm going to rejoice because my hope is not in me. My hope is in Jesus Christ. This morning, is that where your hope is found? This morning, are you able to give your past to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust you for the future. I commit myself to you. We're gonna have a chance here in just a minute to sing together as a church family to celebrate the salvation that God brings through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you feel so ashamed, broken down, struggling under the weight of your past, under the weight of present circumstances, can I invite you to come for prayer? Maybe you just need to come here and pray at the altar by yourself. Maybe you need someone to pray for you or pray with you. We want to be able to do that. Maybe you just stand and sing this song as we celebrate the salvation we have through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, I pray that today, today you would do that. You would know that no matter your circumstances, no matter your background, Jesus brings salvation. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing a final song and have a time of prayer here. Father, thank you for how when we look to Scripture, when we think about the stories of Jesus, when we think about the stories of the church, how you have used women in those stories, how you have worked through so many incredible ladies. God, we think about our own lives, moms, grandmas, mentors you have put in our lives, women who have been so strong in the midst of incredibly hard circumstances, God, thank you for the gift of those women in our lives. And God, thank you for how these three ladies from Jesus' background, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, they don't seem like prime candidates to be a part of the Christmas story, and yet they're exactly the type of people that you work through. And so God, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's living under the weight of regret, who could never imagine that you would redeem their story, that you would redeem their past, who feels all this pressure just to hold things together and look like everything's okay, God, I pray that you would bring freedom, that you would bring peace, that you would bring hope, that you would bring salvation. And so God, we come together right now to say that our hope is in you, that we will rejoice in hope knowing that Jesus has come to defeat sin and death. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.